I'm excited about starting a new series. I was saying a couple times, it's like the first day of school, if you like the first day of school. If you don't like the first day of school, it's like Christmas morning. Like whatever, whatever image you like where you are excited about an idea, I'm, kinda, I'm excited about this one. Uh, and I'll explain why as we go. But for 10 weeks, we're doing this thing. And yeah, I, I got I to gotta try and keep myself chill because there's a lot here. So... I began like this. About a year and a half ago, I think it was, I went on a little preview weekend. It was a preview weekend of, uh, it was a leader's thing, but also a pastor's thing. And so uh, it was like right before all of COVID, like February 2020. And so I was there and uh, flew to North Carolina and met with a small group of pastors, maybe 20 or 30. And we were trying to walk through something together. And it was all about doing a specific type of uh, pastor's cohort. And I like talking to people in ministry. I really enjoy talking to uh, other pastors and ministry leaders. I love doing ministry leader training. I, I like people who are bought in and committed. It's just fun, right? Like, because we, what do we talk about when we are in those environments? But like how hard it is to lead our churches. Like that's like, and so, you know, it's like a safe place to go and have conversations about things that are hard. Uh, and like these people aren't going to hate on you for it because they, honestly, they don't, they don't know you that well. Uh, but this was t- to try and get to know you. And it had this, it was interesting because you're going through breakouts, you're having conversations, you're talking about church life. I'm in a room with people I wouldn't normally be in a room with, uh, like this, but we were all connected because of this little cohort. And um, I even met a guy, this is like this small world that I live in, I met a guy who my buddy Steve knows and discipled, and this guy is an Anglican pastor who juggles, a juggling Anglican pastor. And so like, I thought that was cool. Because he goes, oh, yeah, I'm from uh, this area around Chicago. And I said, that's awesome. Like, I, I, I love that. And I was like, I, I have a friend I used to be on staff with who's there. He's like, is it Steve? I was like, oh, my gosh, we both know Steve. That's crazy. So now it's like me. I'm texting Steve. I'm like, hey, your buddy, the Anglican, Anglican jugglers here. And we're all in the same room wondering if we should go through this thing together. Now, the main, the main idea of this entire week, or these, really just two days, but like the main idea of this whole thing was this, that pastors need friends. That's what the main idea was. Now, you might be hearing that and going, that's a really silly thing to spend, you know, fly to North Carolina to hear. Like, you, you don't have to fly to North Carolina to have somebody tell you you need friends. And I, I totally, you would be right to feel that way and to think it maybe is a little bizarre. I get it. But if you know people who are in ministry in some kind of full-time capacity, it can also be a, a, a lonely place, an interesting place to kind of be because, like, it, it's just lose-lose. It's just lose-lose, right? right, right like, like, it's like, I mean, sp- the past year and a half has totally been lose-lose. Like, whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever kind of, like, you're just trying to, like, here we go. And it's like, I think that's terrible. It's like, great, cool. Like, sorry, we'll do the opposite. And somebody else is like, I think that's terrible. I'm like, okay, okay. Cool. This is great. And they used this language. We actually went to one breakout led by a guy who did a bunch of research. And he used this language, I think he'd borrowed it, uh, about the types of ministry relationships you can have. And just, just hear me. You might think it's a little weird, but just, just, just for a second. Allies versus confidants. He said allies versus confidants. He goes, in ministry, you have... Allies, 
And allies, just think about it in the term of war, like allies are people who are on your side because you're going after something together, but you have conflicting interests at some level, right? Like, so, so, so at some point in time, another interest is going to stop me from being on your side. And you have confidants, people who are on your side regardless of what's going to happen. And their point was, often in church life, often in church life, you have many allies but few confidants. Think about that. You have many allies but few confidants, meaning like you have, you have people who love you, like I'm for you, but then if you say something or do something they don't like and you cross them, well, now your allegiances have been shown, right? And it was interesting language and, and honestly very helpful because, I mean, think about it from the term of ministry, and this is not a statement about Genesis, honestly, but like the weird thing about being paid staff at a church is there's a group of people who always know what you make. Always. Always, like, like they always know what, like, they know what you make. Uh, like, the elders vote on our, uh, like, how much we're going to spend on personnel in a given year. Um, and, like, so, like, every, there's just a group of people who always know, and they always approve, and they kind of check that off. And, like, in America, right, that's a pretty private thing, even though I don't really honestly think it needs to be, but that's neither here nor there about the sermon. But, like, you have this group of people. So, if they see how you spend, or they see what you might be like, they might go, oh, well, you know, seems like Hans is doing fine. You know, I don't, I don't think it's, it, we need, he needs any, anything else, because I was just meeting with him, right? That's when, that's, when an, that's when you see an ally. Like, I'm responsible for this part of church life, and so I can't totally be for you in this part of your life. I was watching a few years ago a group of... Uh, musicians talking about being musicians and, and, and recording together and just how fun that was. And they said, it's different than just friendship. We have something different than just friendship. It's, it's kinship. Wow, that was interesting, right? Like, we're not just friends. Like, we, we actually we feel the, the connection of, of kindred spirits, of family, listening to them say that. And so I just think about these, these, this terminology that we try to, try to create. It's, I think, grasping for something, right? Allies, confidants, not friends, kin, right? And, and probably many other things that, that you might hear as well. I'm sure you can think of other ways that we, we talk about it. Because we might say friends and family. Uh, like, you know, we might say allies, confidants. We might say, you know, for us, against us. Like, we have all these kinds of ways that we are trying to navigate this part of life, and that part of life is this, we need meaningful, caring, and life-giving relationships. We need them. We need them. It's very hard for us to, like, like, that's an actual need that we have. And it's not about being introverted or extroverted. It's not about how you would prefer something to be done. It really isn't about your own temperament. It's about the way we were designed and the, in a sense, the mission that we have been given. And so the way God has wired us to be together is important. And we're always grasping for like that. How can I, how can I have that? Ben Rector has this song, you know, Old Friends. It's about how much he loves his old friends. Because you can't make old friends. Right? Like that's his whole line. It's kind of a little catchy little Ben Rector line. But like you can't make old friends. You have them. 
And so it might be the people that you played football with, or it might be the people that you were in a certain study with, or it might be the people that you went to college with. But very often, like, you have just these relationships of people who are on your side regardless. But it's funny. Think about this. How many of those exist in your church today? And that circle gets way smaller. Right? Like, it's like, oh, no, I really lean on this person. I lean on that person. And so this whole web exists of relationships, and I think that's awesome but when we think of church life, we, all, we do. Like, we want to be a, a church family. We use that language, but we still keep each other sometimes at a distance. So this buzzword of community is always funny because we don't just mean community is in the place where people live. Like, you live in a community. What community do you live in? We don't mean it like that. We mean it um, often in, in, in the sense of the, the realm of true and deep and lasting fellowship with people. Like that's, that's often how we, we, we mean it. When we say as church, like that's our little lexicon. We don't just mean community is in geographical area, but community is in deep and meaningful relationships. And so for this week and then the nine coming after, we're going to have a series entertaining that very idea. What actually is biblical community and why does it matter? We just finished 21 weeks in the book of Exodus. And this has been a conversation that we've had, I've had with others, our community group leaders have had it, um, our elders have had conversations, and it'd be one-off or in meetings where we just talk about how difficult it is to be together, how difficult it is to be together. And so today we're going to start with just this idea. Why do Christians even pursue and what I mean by that is like work on, strive for, structure life around it. Why do we even pursue community in the first place? Or why should we? So we just kind of have to start from why do, why do churches even emphasize being together? Because if it's just trying to meet some need you have, you know, that could be met somewhere else, well then go meet that need somewhere else. So why do we make it an emphasis? That's today's question. Why is it necessary in the first place? And so the series itself is going to be the theological development of really creation, fall, recreation, that theme you see in scriptures, but we're going to look at it through the lens of us. And how does does this affect us? Because very often we think only about the individual implications of a sermon or an idea, but the Bible is enduringly corporate in its expectations upon people. Right? So we talk about the pastoral epistles, uh, right? the letters that were written to people in ministry, leadership in the New Testament. But very often, were the epistles written to a person or were they written to churches? They were written to churches. And then in the letters that were written to people, they were written to people about how to help lead their churches. And then you get like little postcards like Philemon uh, that was written to a person uh, who is like a, you know, like, like, and so you get these cool little, little moments, but it's really all like the corporate implication of our common faith. It, all throughout Scripture. And we were just in the book of Exodus and what's happening in the book of Exodus, but God is establishing a nation, a group. And he gives that group a way to live, his law. He gives, a, gives them expectations and ways to worship And so we're going to do, we're going to spend this time talking about the corporate implications because this is not a conversation we often have in the church, at least churches like like this, or as Americans because Americans are about me, 
I mean, just in general, we're kind of built up for like me. I want to focus on me and what's best for me. And, and that's a hard conversation. It's a hard flip to switch to say, no, it's you. It's us. It's what God's building in us. And so I'm looking forward to the series for that. And to look today, we're going to, have two, we're going to be in two places with a little bridge in between. And the two places we're going to be are in the garden and in the upper room. The garden and the upper room. We're going to be in the garden to see how God created this world and the expectation that he had for us. We're going to be in the upper room to see how Jesus spoke to his disciples. The way he spoke to his disciples. Upper room is the place Jesus was with his disciples before he died. And so we're going to look at these two pivotal moments in history and go, what is happening here? And what does it mean for us? Because it's challenging. We're going to start right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to say this, God made us, made us to rule as his image bearers. Now there's a lot going on there, and there God made us to rule as his image bearers. But, if I said this, and I do this in class, like I teach this class, or I talk to, talk to people about the idea of the image of God, I go, we're created in God's image. What does it mean what does it mean to be created in God's image? And people are like, well, uh, it means we love because God is love. And it means we have emotions because God has emotions. And I'm like, what emotions are we talking about, right? Like, and, and so it's like, oh, well, no, it's just his communicable, right? Because that's the word we like to use. Or, uh, like, it's his communicable attributes, meaning the things that exist within him that can also exist within us. But he has these incommunicable attributes that exist only within him, and they do not get applied to us. So, so it's, 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 it means that we love. It means that we're creating his image, meaning that we reflect him in some way. And all, they say all these things. And, of course, we go to Genesis 1. 26 and 27 to do this. And the challenge is like, why don't you look at the next verse and see perhaps an idea of what it means to be created in God's image? Because I think Genesis 1:28 shows us a big part of being made in God's image. But let's say, God has made this world, He made everything in it. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the flesh of the sea, over the birds of, uh, of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then verse 28, and God blessed them. Interesting, we say it's a command, but it's all written as a blessing. That this is a good thing for you. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, and of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So notice, you see it in verse 26, let us make man in our image, let him have dominion over. Then you see it in verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. So though it is true that being created in God's image means that we reflect him in certain ways, one of the ways that we neglect sometimes to talk about how we reflect him is in benevolent, kind Rule and care over this world. That the, that the end game is stated in Genesis. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That theme shows up in Genesis. It shows up after the flood. In Genesis chapter 12, we see, again, the same thing. The establishment of a nation so that all the nations might be blessed. That God is moving to a destination. Jesus is, right, the light of the world. 
in Revelation 21 and 22, we have new heaven and new earth and the nations worshiping. And so this destination is given in Genesis chapter 1 that stays, that thread stays throughout all of Scripture, though the mechanism in which that is, is being worked out at any specific time might look different. The whole, the whole push is the same, which is a world that is reflecting and worshiping the real God, their creator. So God made us to rule as his image bearers. We're to be reflections and representations of his likeness in all the world. And we're to keep this rule in keeping with his character, which we do very poorly, don't we? We actually don't, we don't keep this rule in keeping with his character. He's benevolent. He is kind. He is loving. He is authoritative. He is just. It, it isn't just that we are created, but we're created to do something in this world. Is that we have purpose that is built in within us because of the fact that we are created in God's image. And, don't miss this, we were created, Genesis 1, 26, 25, 26, 27, or 26, 27, 28, we're created together to do this. We're created together to do this. Not created individually to do this. In fact, Many would say kind of Genesis 1 gives you this big view, kind of this kind of summative view, and then Genesis 2 can kind of zoom you in a little bit and give you an illustrative story of how this works specifically in relationship to man and woman. And so in Genesis chapter 2, now think about this. How does God define everything in Genesis chapter 1 after it is created? What does he say? There's a word. It begins with a G, ends with a D, same letter in the middle, right? Good, right. He's a, he describes everything as good, like holy qualitatively, uniquely, because he created, it's good. This is good. This is good. This is good. What is not good? Well, that shows up in Genesis chapter 2. What is not good actually shows up in Genesis chapter 2. God did not intend for us to be alone. Now, one, two, three, honesty. I'm curious about this. I can personally, just Hans, I can sit quietly by myself for a really long time. Totally fine with it. Totally fine with it. You might walk up to me and be like, hey, is everything okay? You've been sitting in that chair for 72 hours. And I go, I'm great. I am great. Like, I've just been sitting here quietly. I mean, I will go through days where, like, I might be working at my office at home, and it might be like 4 o'clock, and I take a phone call, and I'm like, I think this is the first time I've used my vocal cords today. I think this is the first time that I've, I have I have made any noises. I write. You might know, like, I'm a texter. I'm an emailer. Like, my, my communication is going to be written because I like to have a record of it. I like to know what I said so I can at least know if I've messed up. If I say it out loud, then it's just my word versus yours, and I'm going to be right. <laughs> but that's not everybody. That's not everybody. Some people really enjoy relationships and, and long to have just daily, if not like hour by hour, face-to-face personal interactions with people. They need it. I have a child like this. So I would do things, with, like, like as I was, my kids were younger and we lived in Baton Rouge, I would take them places. And I tried to do this for a little while and I failed at it miserably. Uh, and I was just trying to do it with three kids. Like my buddy had like 11 and he was trying to do this with them. I think he's at, he's at 13 now. Uh, we're like on their, the, the, the date of their birthday, meaning like if my kid's born on the 13th and like every 13th I do something with them just so I have 13, you know, 12 moments in a year where I celebrate something with that kid individually. When you have 13 kids, right, half your... 
half your month is trying to find things to do for each kid. It doesn't really work that well. So he had to kind of shut that down. So I tried it, and I was taking one of my kids with me one time. He must have been two, about two at the time. And we were going, hey, we're going to go to Chick-fil-A and get some yogurt or whatever we're going to do. I take him, and I put him in the car, and he uses this line with me. And he says, where are our friends? And in that, he meant, where's mom? Where are my brothers? Like, where are our friends? Because for him, if you do stuff solo, bad news bears. Like, my other kids don't care at all. They're like, I would prefer no one ever be around. I will go, like, just, you want, you want to go somewhere by ourselves? That's totally fine. But like, I have one who's like, no, together is the only way. Now, he's outnumbered four to one in our family, which is kind of hard, but he's changing us. Regardless of where you are on that, Genesis 2.18 still matters. Genesis 2.18 looks at Adam and says this, It is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable or fit for him. This, now hear me, this is a declaration made by God, not by me, not by you, right? It's a declaration made by God that aloneness is not good for us, which is interesting because he exists in a world, Adam exists in a world where, you know, as far as he knows, this is perfect. Ability to sin is there if you want to use like the, you know, uh, but it's just language that it's like Latin language, you don't need it. But like he could sin. But in regard to Adam in that world, man, that'd be pretty nice. And what does God do? But look at that situation, say, that's not good. I'll make a helper. I'll make a helper. So alone isn't good, and that problem is diagnosed by God. Diagnosed by God. Now, you might be hearing me, and I would think you'd be right to say this. Hey, Hans, uh, we go back, like, you know, historically, we always go back and we look at this about marriage. This is about, just, this, is like, this is like marriage. And so, so how are you saying it's not good to be alone? Does that mean every single person in this room needs to get married? I go, well, I can't say that, right? Because we even see in the New Testament the value of singleness in the life of the church. That it is highlighted as incredibly important that people who are not married have value. And in fact, and we hate to say this, but they're actually spoken of more highly than married people, right? Like, like they're spoken of better than married people because they have a certain level of discipline that married people seem to not have. Uh, so, uh, so they just say, it's actually, this is better, but you know what? Just don't burn. It's better that you don't burn. So, but, but it's honestly better to be single because you don't have any divided passions. No divided attention. And if you've ever seen somebody who is celibate for the Lord, just I like actually made a decision decisively, reads that passage and goes, my application of that passage is to not get married. I'm not going to get married. Like, I know specifically of one uh, man who has done that, and he is unreal as just a human. Like, like he just goes, this is what I want, and this is what I do. Uh, he has more degrees than I think I have fingers, because he's just pursued that educationally. He, I remember one time I had him as a professor in a class, and he goes, you can call me any time between 6 a.m. and midnight. Don't call me between midnight and 6 a.m., but other than that, you can call me any time. No one else says that, right? But he's like, I exist to help you. That's why I'm here. 
All right, I train you, I care about you, I'm interested in you. So that might have been 11 o'clock one night, and I was panicking about some preaching assignment, and what does he do? But he's like, let's talk. So he talks to me. And so we don't want to diminish singleness as we have this conversation, and we look at this idea of it's not good. He goes, so, you know, if it's about marriage, I don't, I don't need this. But God is, is showing and demonstrating for us, even in Genesis 2, that aloneness, right, is bad. It is bad. Genesis 1 shows us cooperation is the expectation, right? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But the scriptures also, let's not lose this, the scriptures will also highlight for us, outside of the realm of marriage, the value of human relationships. The value of being together. One that is incredibly popular, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says this, two are better than one. Because they have good reward for their toil. This is about that in industry or in business. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fourth cord is not quickly broken. So we have this, this wisdom of Solomon, right? We see what is coming here. And, and what is he saying but together is better than alone. And he's not speaking about it in the realm of marriage. Together, relationally, is better than alone. It's better in business. It's better in life. It's better in farming. It's better when you're cold. Like, it's always better to be with others. You know, or thinking, you might think of, like, the movie Castaway, and you got to make your, like, Wilson with your bloody hand because, like, you just need someone to talk to you and you go a little crazy. It's difficult to think that we were, we were wired for this because so often we have our own temperaments and things that we bring to the table. But, but what we see is, no, it's, it, is, it is good to be together. You're created to be together. And being together is a part of how we bring God's image to the world, right? Even as Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out what? One by one? Nope. Nope. He didn't send them out one by one. Send them out two by two, right? Like they sent them out in pairs to go minister. He didn't just go, right? But you think about it, hey, bang for buck, right? If two people going to one town is good, how about one person going to a town and another going to another? You can have two people going to two towns, not two people going to one. You're wasting your manpower, Jesus. You're ruining it. If it's really about the expedient movement of people to places, then we need to do this as quickly as we can. Which means one by one, you get out there and you go. That's not what he did. He did, he did two by two. When Jesus serves his disciples, and Jesus was in the beginning of the Gospel of John, he even says, Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man's heart. Which means he didn't give himself over to man. But listen to how he speaks to his disciples in John 15. We're not to the upper room comment we want to have or uh, yet, but... In John 15, he says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And we've heard this before. Greater love has no one than this, that someone who lays down his life for his, what's that word? Friends, companions, fellows. Now, I, I love this. Listen to what Jesus says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. But you don't choose me, 
But I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit, and that fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I find it interesting that the God of the universe says to a group of guys before his death, You're my friends. You're my friends. You've seen the, I'm sure it shows up about every Easter, the, uh, the meme, the biggest miracle Jesus ever had was to get into his 30s with 12 good friends. One of those guys was not a good friend. Because we just recognize how difficult it is to be relationally connected to people. But I just find it interesting that Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you're my friends because I've shared everything with you. And I command these things to you so that you will love one another. Some of you hear, like, since Jesus is saying, I befriended you, so you should clearly befriend each other. You, you, should, you should love one another. And so I want to just, just stop for a second take a brief inventory. In the garden, God created man and said it wasn't good for him to be alone. But he did give him a, a, a destination of filling the earth with his image, being fruitful, multiplying, fill the earth, and having dominion. Even in our fallen existence, we hear the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes saying, two better than one. Value of connection amongst people. Jesus, in selecting his disciples and walking with them, though they're fallen, calls them his friends and commands them to love one another. Now, I could give many more illustrations on why people matter. How many do we need, though? Are we going to believe this is true with 15 more, 25 more? Is three sufficient? You could keep going with the value of relationships all throughout the Bible. Value of relationships because it's built into what God had created. Now, so we're going to get to the upper room. Where Jesus prays in John 17 is not fully known, so I'm, I'm tying it to the upper room. Uh, because John is the one who talks about Jesus' prayer before his death. If in Gethsemane we know he prays. Right, we know he is praying in Gethsemane, but he's not with his disciples. They're at, the three are at a distance. Right, they fall asleep, and so you know some go. Well, where where did it happen? I don't think you can really land on. I know exactly where John 17 happened, but upper room does make sense as they finish out. So we have this blessing in Genesis chapter one to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're going to talk more about sin next week and why it's so hard for us to do what God has put before us. But Jesus, our Redeemer, takes time before his death to pray for us, to pray for us, to intercede on our behalf and listen to what Jesus prays for. Now, first he prays for himself in, this, in John 17. Then he prays for his disciples. That's his next group of people he prays for. And then he prays for those who come to faith through the ministry of his disciples. And I just love this. I love that before Jesus died, he was praying for people who came to faith through the ministry of his disciples. Like he was praying, if you're in Christ today, he's praying for you. At that moment before his death, he's praying for you. And listen to what he prays. I do not ask for these, those are his disciples only. Verse 20. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, this is the prayer, that they may all be one, 
Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe believe that you have sent me. I mean, isn't there a lot that he could have prayed for in that moment? Father, I pray that all these disciples would, would, would be zealous, bold, smart, sharp, convicting, cunning, friendly, happy, joyful, all these things. I pray they'd be one. And, and how does he root that reasoning? actually roots it in the relationship the Father and the Son have together. Just as I'm in you, you're in me, they may be with us. And he has a destination. Isn't this interesting? Because didn't Genesis 1 begin with the destination of the ends of the earth? Right? Fill the world uh, with my image. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What do we still see in John 17, all these years later, but Jesus saying, I want this to happen so that the world may know that you have sent me. That the unity of the church, right, us, Jesus' disciples, is an apologetic, a defense for the coming of Jesus into this world. Huh. That the world would see that and know that Jesus was sent from the Father. That's his prayer. I pray that my disciples would be one as we are one so that the world may know that you sent me. A people who live differently than the world around them because they're connected to their creator in a way the world around them is not. Though everyone is created in God's image, not everyone is connected to God through the work of Jesus. Right? Because that's mediated by faith. Spirit indwells. So what would that then look like? Perhaps. Just, just, just perhaps. A people who, have, who are full of love for one another. I mean, we see that. John 13, John 15. A people who are full of love for one another rather than full of hurt and mistrust, full of love. I tell you this, like, I, am, I am much more likely to go to a gathering if I know people are for me. I think you'd do the same. I've shared this before. You know, I, I, was, I was a young pastor. I was invited. Hopefully they never listened to the sermon, but if so, I still love you guys. Um, young pastor, and I was invited to this get-together, and I had said before to you guys, like, I, I, I was nervous about it. And I asked the question to the guy on the phone, is this an ambush? Is this an ambush? Right, it goes back to that allies and confidants. Like, are you, for, you want to just get to know me or do you want to get to know something about me so that you can either like me or not like me? Right, I mean, how many of us go day to day keeping people at arm's length because we're so nervous about what would happen if they actually knew what was going on? Like, like they, they, they go, well, I, don't, I don't know if they're going to like me if they hear that. And it's funny because, because it does happen. I mean, it's probably happened for many of you in this room. The moment you let something about yourself out and you find yourself treated differently. Right? It's almost like you put up a, a, a trial balloon, right? You just go, I'm going to let somebody know this. I'm going to let somebody know that this isn't my first marriage. 
I'm going to let somebody know something, some trauma that happened in my past. I'm going to let somebody know something that hurt me. I'm going to let somebody know something I did that I wish they wouldn't have known. I'm going to let somebody know that I'm in pain. I'm going to let somebody know that I'm an addict. And we're going to see what happens. And what often happens, right? I mean, honestly, what, what often happens just anecdotally, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. Why? Because I'm for you until you cross me. And I'm for you, I'm for you until, until something wrong happens, right? But what did Jesus pray for his church? That they would be one so that the world might know that you sent me. Right? Where we know we're going to be loved rather than hurt. A people who are committed to the mission of Jesus to make disciples of all nations and are not going to squabble over tertiary matters. Well, what do you think this verse means? I'm like, for 400 years plus, no one has unanimity on that thing. So I don't know. Is that going to be my ticket? My answer to that? Right? Like, like okay. Right? So, so like that we would actually just be going, the Lord has said, make disciples of all nations. And so we zealously pursue it. A people who give joyful attention to one another and are not interested in their own needs being met. That's way harder. Why? What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do for us? I mean, Philippians 2 sticks in my mind so much. I was, I was listening to, uh, I have Siri read me emails in the morning on the drive to church. Like, there's one specific email every Sunday morning that I, I listen to. It's like a newsletter, and I just, it's what I do. It's a weird little habit I have. And I listen to it at 1.5 speed, so it sounds funny. And so that, I'm listening to this, and again, this author is writing about Philippians 2, and now Jesus is a servant. Who never said, though the disciples said this about him, he himself never said it. Disciples said this about him, his children would come to him. He has better things to do. He has better things to do. You never hear Jesus say, I have better things to do. Do I need to go to a funeral? I'm going to go to a funeral. You need me there? I'm there. Now, there were times when he did, people were looking for him. He goes, let's go somewhere else, because his mission was to do the will of his father. But even a woman who was bleeding and had gone to many doctors and had no answer just thought, if I could just touch his garment. I might be healed. And everyone's around him, and she touches it, and she's healed. And Jesus goes, who touched me? Who touched my garment? And what does he do? Enter into a conversation with a woman no one else would talk to. Where every other doctor said, "We're we're out of options. Jesus gave attention to her. And it is written about in his inspired, authoritative word that the God of the universe stopped and talked to somebody who just wanted to touch his garment. A people with <clears throat> humility and a sacrificial spirit who are interested in bettering the lives of others. Because aren't we, I mean, honestly, aren't we all busy in the earthly sense? Sure. I mean, while Jesus was on this earth, he was still holding the world together. He was kind of busy. Like, 
the sun is still rising and setting. And he's ministering in an obscure corner of the world, having time for people. It's people who are committed to life in Christ and life in Christ the world may know him. So we see this thread, and this is the hard part, plain and simple, sermon one, plain and simple is this, God made us to be together. God made us to be together. Why? Because he did. And he knows what's best. And he knows what's best. We're image bearers who rule together, who have a work of showing God's heart to this world, people who are redeemed by his grace so the world might know him. Thus we honor one another and value one another and care for one another and belong to one another and share with one another and pray for one another as people who are cooperating together to see a world know the risen Lord Jesus. When I diminish you or you diminish me, we are hindering what God has established. Which is your role here matters. Your presence here matters. Your life here matters. Because we are brought together by the Lord. In two weeks, we get to go to one of my favorite chapters, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Um, first half of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is about the individual application of God's grace towards us. And the 11 through 22 is about the corporate application of God's grace towards us. And it's hard because honestly, you scratch, you don't even have to scratch very hard at the surface of people at Genesis or the people at any church. And within 10 seconds, we're yelling at each other. Right? We're yelling at each other. Like, like oh, you believe that? You voted for that? You did that? You think that? Like, like, oh, cool. Well, I thought you were nice, but I'm out. Right? Or you're out. There is little room for that in Christ's church. Honestly, there's little room for that. God made us to be together. And we live life with a clear recognition of Christ's authority. Even in issues where we might disagree, we are submissively connected to one another in Jesus. Even in issues where our temperaments are different. I mean, speaking to my fellow introverted brothers and sisters in the room, even when we are fine sitting by ourselves forever and we're collecting dust because we haven't moved in a while, can you say, honestly and convictionally, no, we need each other. We need each other. Even if we think, and this is hard, even if we think we could do it better ourselves, that isn't the point. The point isn't doing it better yourself. This is why families have so much fun, sometimes, I'll say sometimes, like making dinner with their kids. It takes way longer, it's way messier, the food tastes grosser, but what happened? We all contributed. We all contributed to seeing the world have dinner. In the church life, isn't it better when we, we go at it together? Even though we get done and we're like, here's my overcooked, bad-tasting church life, God. And he's like, you know what? I take that and I make it beautiful. And the world sees it. And they see me. It's hard for us. 
So to that idea, why do we pursue community? We pursue community because God created us to need it. And he commanded in his original creation, in Genesis chapter 1, he commanded us to fill the earth with his image. Now that was marred by sin. That's next week. So, for this whole idea, we're coming to nine weeks where we delve into this theological development. How was it created? Why is it hard? That's next week. Why is this so hard? Spoiler alert, you're the reason. I'm the reason. Right? Like, it's the ownership of going, no, no, I'm the reason my church is not cool. Like, I'm the reason, not you. Well, if the elders only, or if only this, or if my community leader only did that, like, like right? It, like, an understanding of sin and an ownership of sin means no, right? I'm the problem. I'm the problem. So that'll be some next week. What did Jesus do to redeem it? We get two weeks on that, on the corporate implications of Christ's redemption for us. What did he unite, and what is he building? Right? Both of those images are there. What does the Spirit do for us? How does the Spirit make this possible? Then we spend about three weeks, kind of slow it down. What difficult issues do we have living in community? Issues related to transparency and honesty. You'll hear a passage where the Apostle Paul says, we loved you so much that we didn't share just the gospel, but our very lives also. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? Wait a minute, I thought I was just preaching the gospel. No, Paul goes, I preach the gospel to you and you know me. And you know me. Ooh, well, that's a different, it's a different understanding of human relationships. And just think about it. I mean, read any epistle, uh, maybe except for Galatians. You can remove that one. But, but read almost any epistle. How affectionate is the language of these epistles? I mean, when is the last time you spoke to anybody but your spouse that way? Anybody. When is the last time you, you spoke that encouragingly and lovingly and graciously? So we talk about transparency, we talk about love, we talk about generosity, the handing over of $100 bills to one another because we want to help meet their needs, because it matters, because we're in this together, versus the proving to me that you're worth it, because I didn't prove to Jesus I was worth it, in fact, I, I, in, in regard to my identity and sin, I was a child of wrath. That's what the scriptures say of me. I didn't deserve that. That's grace. I was given it. I was given it even though I didn't deserve it. So heart issues for us. Heart issues for us. And then, where's it all headed? You guys know me. I can't go too long without talking about the world that's to come because we forget about it. God is doing something in this room. He's doing something that requires us to be listening and to be watching and to be submitted to his ways, to see his design and how we fit into it. It's bigger than Genesis, but also directly involves Genesis. It's bigger than your community group, but it also includes your community group, and it ends with a world worshiping a risen Jesus. That's worth it.